Welcome to the visiting. My name is Andy, I'm the vicar here. And um, if we haven't met yet, we'd love to chat to you afterwards. Um, Shall we pray as we come to God's word? Father God, we thank you for these uh, true words that we've read from your word. Thank you for speaking to us. And we pray as we listen to them that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to hear you afresh speak to each one of us individually. Amen. There's quite a lot of slides, so just do your best. It's fine. There we go. Um, Steve Jobs was perhaps one of the most influential people of our time. He's the co-founder of Apple Computers. His inventions have revolutionised 21st century life. Where would we be without iPads, iPhones, MacBooks, and all those sorts of things? And uh, that movie, the 2015 movie, Steve Jobs, gives us an insight into the man and his influence. Each act uh, tells the story of the launch of an exciting new Apple product. Uh, It's a bit of an odd concept for a movie, isn't it? It's basically a movie about um, a computer geek. But Steve Jobs was obviously much more than a computer geek. He was a very successful businessman and he was a creative genius. And the writers of that movie must have banked on the fact that we wanted to find out Audiences wanted to find out about a creative genius, not just a computer geek. John chapter 1 also provides an insight into the life of a creator. But the writer of these words wasn't just writing about an influential man. He believed that his subject was the most influential man ever to live. And he was convinced that the world really, really needed to find out about him. And ever since the Apostle John wrote these words about Jesus, Christians have made the same claim that Jesus is the most influential human being ever to walk on the planet. And it's not just Christians who say that, is it? Listen to what the author H.G. Wells said. I am an historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very centre of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. John's Gospel, his account of Jesus' life, begins with these familiar words, these first 18 verses, which we know as the prologue. And we often hear them every year, don't we, at Christmas. But I wonder if, if we don't tend to get much opportunity to really dig into them and to to understand what they mean. Perhaps these these words tend to wash over us at carol services. Maybe they even leave us a little bit confused. So for the next three Sunday mornings, we're going to work our way slowly through these first 18 verses of John's Gospel. We're going to discover more about the identity of Jesus and why he came at Christmas time. And as we look at them, I'm praying that we'll be strengthened and encouraged in our faith and we'll be filled with amazement and wonder at the truths that they contain. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're still thinking about the claims of the Christian faith, I I hope that these words will also help you to think about Jesus and perhaps to make an informed decision about him. There are three things I think that John wants us to be convinced about Jesus in these first five verses. The first one is mind-blowing. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. The first line in a novel often sets the scene for the rest of the book, doesn't it? 
And the first lines sometimes go down in history, so think about the following. In a hole in the ground lived a hobbit. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Famous opening lines, but none so famous, none so wonderful as John's. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, the Apostle John is not writing a novel, but he knows the importance of his first line, and he chooses it very, very carefully to echo the beginning of another book, which we've already read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The writer of that book tells us that God created everything. He tells us why everything existed, because God created it. And John deliberately alludes to that story as he begins the story of Jesus. Because he wants us to know that the story of Jesus does not begin in a manger. It doesn't even begin nine months before a manger. It begins in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. So flick back through all those old copies of calendars you've got. Turn your clock back as far as, you, as it will go. Unearth the most ancient human civilization you can imagine. Estimate the age of the universe. However far back you go, you will never find a time without Jesus, the Word. He was there at the beginning. He is co-eternal with the Father. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Those are absolutely extraordinary words for John to say, because like every Jew, John believed in the uniqueness and oneness of God. But here he's saying absolutely clearly, Jesus is God. And then in verse 2, he makes the point from a slightly different angle so that we can't miss it. He was with God in the beginning. Just think about how we use that word with in everyday language. I'm going to stay with so-and-so. Didn't you hear? She's with him now. Our company is going to merge with that other company. Whenever we are with someone, it implies relationship, doesn't it? And it's like that here. John is saying that there is relationship at the heart of God. The word was with God. Of course, it is true that you can look from the beginning of the Bible to the very end, and you will never find the word Trinity anywhere. But we won't understand who Jesus is without that wonderful doctrine, because it is throughout the Bible. Especially here, the Father and the Son, along with the Spirit, are co-eternal. One God, three persons, always existing in an eternal relationship of love. And you see, that really matters to us. That's not just an interesting doctrine. It matters to us because it opens up the possibility that you and I can have a relationship with that one true God as well. Through the Word, who is the Son of God, we are invited into a relationship with God the Father, and we can call him, as Jesus taught us, our Father in heaven. That is the most awesome privilege, but it is only possible because Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. And if we ever stop believing that, we imperil our own relationship with God. The early church realised that when it had to deal with a man called Arius. Here's a picture of him on the screen. Arius famously said, there, once, there was once when he was not. In other words, he believed that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. And the early church rightly realised that Arius' teaching was wrong. 
But sadly, Arius' teachings are still with us today. So, so listen to this translation of the Jehovah Witnesses Bible of John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. It's a totally wrong translation, but that is what it says. So if you get into a conversation with a friendly Jehovah's Witness on the doorstep, or perhaps outside Ellsfield Station, they will agree with you that Jesus is the Son of God. But they believe something totally different to you and to me about that. In fact, they believe that Jesus was the first and greatest thing that Jehovah God created. They do not believe that Jesus is co-eternal. They do not believe he is fully divine like his Father. And once they go astray on that fundamental issue, their whole system unravels. You see, the Bible is no longer their source of final authority. Jesus can't be their saviour. So Jehovah's Witness will speak to us about grace and salvation. But a Jehovah's Witness sadly has to save themselves because they cannot have a relationship with God as Father because they have rejected Jesus, the one who is co-eternal with the Father. It's not just Arius. It's not just Jehovah's Witness. Listen to what the Quran says about Jesus from Surah 4172. It says this, O people of the scripture, do not commit excess in your religion, or say about Allah except the truth. The Messiah Jesus, the son of Mary, was but a, was but a messenger of Allah, and his word which he directed to Mary and a soul created at a command from him. So believe in, his, in Allah and his messengers, and do not say three, desist. It is better for you. Now, I'm sure we've all got friends who say to us that basically all different religions are basically the same. All different paths leading up the same mountain. For example, the, 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 the Muslim God is the same as the Christian God. It sounds very tolerant, very acceptable, doesn't it, to our 21st century ears. But statements like that just don't add up. You see, the Quran, as we can read, says that Jesus is the messenger of God. The Bible says that he is co-eternal with the Father. They might be different paths, but they cannot lead to the same God. And so what they say about salvation cannot be the same either. A couple of years ago, um, I met a local Muslim man at our, at our church playgroup, and um, we had a, lot, a few nice conversations there, and he took me, showed me around the mosque. I met up with him once, possibly twice. We looked at the Bible a little bit together. And it was a great time. It was a privilege to hear from him about his faith and for me to be able to share something of my faith. But it, neither of us pretended that we believed the same thing. It was obvious that we didn't, especially when it came to the person of Jesus. I'm sure that many of us have got Muslim friends or neighbours or colleagues. Maybe we get chatting to them. Sometimes perhaps we get chatting to, to Jehovah's Witness outside the tube station or at home. And of course it would be wrong just to arrogantly say to them, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But if we truly love them, then we won't pretend that we believe the same thing as them. Instead, we will want to pray for opportunities to gently and respectfully tell them how what we believe is different to what they believe, especially about Jesus. Because our salvation and their salvation depends on this wonderful truth. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. We cannot enjoy relationship with God without him, without that. So first of all, John takes us back to the very beginning. But then he shows us what Jesus did at the very beginning. And that takes us to the second thing he wants us to be convinced about. Jesus is the life-giving creator. Jesus is the life-giving creator. Verse 3. 
Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John covers all the bases. He leaves no room for any doubt. Jesus made everything. Nothing exists that wasn't made by Jesus. From supernova to sound waves. From asteroids to amoeba. From mountains to mice. Every single atom owes its existence to Jesus. We read about that, didn't we? In Genesis chapter 1 earlier. Everything made by him. Uh, a year or so ago, the scientist Brian Cox, uh, the popular scientist Brian Cox, was interviewed by that um, popular interviewer, Russell Brand. And uh, Russell Brand asked Brian Cox about his atheism. And um, Brian Cox's answer took Russell Brand by surprise. This is what Brian Cox said. Science does not rule out the existence of a creator by definition because we don't know how the universe began. Full stop. He continued, I'd love to know, but I don't feel compelled to go further than the statement. I don't know. His honesty that science cannot answer all his questions, I think, is incredibly refreshing. But also he admits something there, doesn't he? He admits that he would love to know, why am I here? The Bible claims that Jesus is the answer to that question. He is the reason why there is something rather than nothing. In fact, many scientists agree that if you go far enough back to the beginning of time, all the way back to the beginning of the universe, all the mathematical models, all the laws of physics eventually break down. They stop working if you get right, right back to the beginning. And you get to a point where the direct action of God is not only possible, but according to many, scientifically likely. And the Apostle Paul describes that direct action of God like this in Colossians chapter 1. He said, For in him, that is Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything we can see, everything we can't see, everything we can explain, all the mysteries we can't fathom yet, the things we can think about, the things that are beyond our wildest imagination, the things nearby and that we can touch, the things millions of light years ago which we will never ever get anywhere near. The Bible says to Brian Cox and to each one of us, you can know Jesus made it. But if that thought isn't mind-blowing enough, just listen to what John says next about Jesus, verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. You see, I suppose it would be just about possible to create a lifeless creation, a universe full of solids and gases and liquids and places like Pluto, totally devoid of life. It would still be amazing, but it wouldn't be good enough for Jesus. He's not just the creator. He's the life-giving creator. Later on in John's Gospel, Jesus says this about himself. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. You see, we saw earlier, didn't we, the, the Son is in an eternal relationship of love with God the Father. And because of that eternal relationship of love, the life of the Father flows through the Son to all things, like a spring of water in a desert, causing it to bloom. Every heartbeat, every breath, 
The cry of every newborn child, the movement of every limb, the chemical reactions hidden in every cell, every sight seen, sound heard, smell smelt, taste tasted. It all happens because Jesus is the life-giving creator. And who is the ultimate beneficiary of that? You and me. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Without the light of the sun, there would be no life on this planet. Without Jesus, none of us could enjoy the life God made us for. Without Jesus, there'd be no joy, no delight, no relationships, no laughter, no fun, no loyalty, no purpose, no fulfilment, no hope, nothing. Without Jesus, he is the life-giving creator. Well, that sounds pretty wonderful, I think. But can we really believe that today? See, do you remember Brian Cox's doubts? They were built on the assumption that science can't answer our questions about God. And many people would agree with that idea, but is it really true? After all, many scientists throughout history have been believers. Their faith often inspired their science, and their science often confirmed their faith more deeply. Is it possible for the same thing to happen today, for the discoveries of science to uh, confirm faith rather than weaken it, which is what many, many people would suggest to us? Well, I think it is. Let me just give you one piece of evidence, I think, from this text even. Notice how John describes Jesus as the Word. I think that phrase takes us back to what we saw in Genesis chapter 1. What was it that kept on being repeated? And God said, and God said, and God said. See, God creates by his word. And John identifies that word as the person of Jesus. And then what do you find when you look at the centre of every living thing? Words, letters, the genome of every creature, living creature, is made up of just four or five chemical letters. And, then, and yet those letters spell millions and millions of words. All the information needed for the building blocks of life. See, the letters of DNA are chemical information, aren't they? But they encode much more than chemical information. A bit like a piece of paper is made up of chemicals, paper and ink. But that's not the information. The information is reliant upon the author who's put it together in a particular way. The information is non-material, not material. It depends on the mind of the author. John Lennox, Oxford Professor of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science, suggests it is a bit like that with DNA and with the Creator. He says this, The non-materiality of information points to a non-material source, a mind, the mind of God. In other words... There is information at the heart of creation because there is an intelligent mind outside of creation who has put that information there. And he's given us loads of evidence to see it in the centre of every living thing. Elsewhere, Lennox sums it up like this. He says, there are not many options, essentially just two. Either human intelligence ultimately owes its origin to mindless matter or there is a creator. It is strange that some people claim that it is their intelligence that leads them to prefer the first option to the second. So if you're still considering the claims of the Christian faith perhaps this morning, 
Or maybe you feel confused about how to fit what you believe alongside the claims of science. Or maybe science and stuff like that is a big barrier to a friend of yours you're trying to share Jesus with. Well, please leave here this morning, realising that you don't need to leave your brain at the door of the church. We can confidently and intelligently believe what the Bible says about Jesus. He is the life-giving creator. So John took us all the way back to the very beginning. He shows us Jesus' eternal nature. He's co-eternal with the Father. He then tells us that he is the creator of all life. And he wants us to be convinced about those things. But he knows as well that there is a, a really important spiritual dimension to all of this. And so he takes us to our final lesson. Jesus is the light that can't be mastered. Jesus is the light that can't be mastered. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. I don't know if you woke up in the middle of the night last night. If you did, perhaps you turned the light on. And when you turned the light on, what happened? Light flooded the room. The darkness didn't put up a fight. The light just came. And that is because darkness is not the absence of light. So darkness is not the opposite of light. It's the absence of light. So imagine that at the very beginning. Nothing but darkness. And God said, let there be light. Bang. Jesus spoke. And light banished the darkness. It was dispelled in a flash. The darkness couldn't master Jesus' light. And that is the idea that John is wanting us to think about here in verse 5. He's not talking about physical light and darkness. Instead, he's talking about the light that we need in the spiritual realm of our lives. Naturally, you see, we try to explain life without God. We imagine that he is an irrelevance an historical footnote in human thought. We imagine he's sitting on an armchair at the other end of the universe. That's what I used to think. We try to master him. We extinguish his light. But all those attempts to, to, to banish the light are doomed to fail. We cannot master Jesus' light. Jesus will shine. And we need him to shine into our darkness. Jesus put it like this to his disciples just before he died. John chapter 12. You are going to have the light just a little longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. That word overtakes. It's the same word as in chapter 1 verse 5 translated overcome. See, we need Jesus' light in our lives if we want to enjoy life as God intended us to enjoy it. If we don't, we will be mastered and overcome by the darkness. That is a terrifying place to be, isn't it? We will not know where we are going. Wonderfully, Jesus came to shine his light into our spiritual darkness. He'll, and he'll keep shining his light into all the dark recesses of our lives. Often that will be deeply uncomfortable and we'll want to kind of extinguish it and push it out and reject it. Many of our friends will try to ignore it completely. But it's essential that we allow that light into our lives because we need it if we want to learn how to live as God intended us to live, if we want to know him as we were intended to know him. Jesus is the light that can't be mastered. So let's not try to master him. I brought my copy of the Steve Jobs movie in this morning, and as you'll notice, it's still in cellophane wrapper. 
haven't watched it yet. Um, a movie about a computer geek isn't exactly my kind of thing. I, I can't afford to ignore Steve Jobs. But none of us can afford to ignore Jesus. John writes his story, he writes this prologue to convince us about who Jesus is. <coughs> Co-eternal with the Father. He's the one who invites us into that relationship. He's the one. Because of him, we can say, our Father in heaven. He's the life-giving creator. He's the reason why there's something rather than nothing. He's the reason why you and I are here. And he's the light that can't be mastered. So will we let Jesus shine his light into our hearts today and over the coming weeks as we think about Christmas? And will we pray for others to experience that light shining into their hearts too? Should we have a moment of quiet to, to think about what we've heard and to talk to God about these things? And then I'll say a prayer. Jesus said, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Father God, please help us to be people who walk in the light so the darkness might not overtake us. Thank you that Jesus came to shine his light into this dark world and into our dark lives. We want to be children of the light. We pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.